As we come to the word of God this morning, I ask that you'd please bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we ask as we come and open the text of your holy word that you would please illumine our minds, that you would humble our hearts, that you would teach us how we might live according to your word. And Father, I pray that you would remind us from your word this morning of how great your love is for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we return again to Luke chapter 15 this morning, and so I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to that chapter, Luke chapter 15. We were in this chapter last week, and it is governed by the first two verses of the chapter. Those two verses dictate and govern everything else that comes in the following 32, or 30 verses rather. It says in chapter, verse 1 that all the tax collectors and sinners were going to Jesus. They were drawing near to listen to him. They were humbling their hearts. They were returning to Jesus in repentance. And the fact that Jesus welcomed those people with open arms and, and shared a meal with them angered the, the religious elite. It angered the Pharisees and the scribes, and they grumbled amongst themselves. They were complaining that Jesus would have the audacity to welcome such reprehensible people. Jesus, knowing what they said, responded with three parables, a unit of three parables. We looked at the first two last week, and those, they emphasize a single point that God rejoices in repentant sinners. Those who repent of their sins are those whom God has searched for and has found and has rescued. They're saved because God has rescued them. Today, we come to the third and final parable of the chapter. This parable is the climax of the chapter. It will carry forward some of the same themes that we've already seen in the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd who goes, leaves the 99 to search for the one lost sheep, and the parable of the lost coin of the woman who in her house loses one out of 10 coins and searches until she finds that one coin, and then she rejoices in finding it. In the first two parables, there's almost no dialogue at all. There's only a statement given by uh, each person there. But in this last parable, there is much dialogue. In fact, the dialogue plays a central role. There's an escalation. The first parable, there's one lost sheep out of a hundred. The second parable, there's one lost coin out of ten. And in this final parable, there's one lost son out of two. No longer are we dealing with possessions or livestock or objects, but we're dealing with people. And those people that really represent the groups that are right before Jesus, you have Jesus representing one group, you have the scribes and Pharisees representing another, and then you have the tax collectors and sinners representing a third. And all of them now come onto the scene in this final parable, and we, words are put into their mouths. But let's begin by reading this parable for us this morning. Pick up with me in verse 11, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. It says, And he said, 
There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, this younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But he was still, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Friends, in this passage, we are going to see two aspects, two illustrations of God's grace towards sinners. And as we look at these two illustrations of God's grace, we'll be prompted to ask, how will I respond to God's overtures of grace to me? How will I respond to God's overtures of grace to me? This morning, we only have time to look at the first illustration of God's grace, and that is God's grace to the self-indulgent. God's grace to the self-indulgent. And this is in verses 11 through 24. But look with me first at verse 11. It begins with a simple statement. There was a man who had two sons. This story is universally known as the parable of the prodigal son, which is an accurate, which is an accurate title in one sense. But too often, people miss the fact that this story is about two sons, not just one. It can also obscure the fact that there is a father who is at the middle 
of this story. He's a central character that is here as well. He, in many ways, is the central character, and that father is the one who has two sons. But of the three characters, the younger one is the one that begins the drama, and as this young man's story unfolds, this younger son story unfolds, we see uh, several truths that are unfolded here. And the first truth I want to draw your attention to is the freedom of rebellion. The freedom of rebellion. The quotes around freedom is to indicate that a sinner believes he gets freedom in his sin, but it is not real freedom after all. But notice what it says in verse 12. It says, the younger of them, the younger of the sons, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, for as insensitive as this might be for one of us today, it was unheard of in that time and culture. Because, you see, inheritance distribution happened at the time of the father's death, or as the father was on his deathbed, is when those arrangements would be made. And so by this son coming to his father and asking for his share of the property is tantamount to him saying that he wants his father to be dead. He wants his father off the scene to move out of the way because he wants what's coming to him. In other words, this son is saying that he wants nothing to do with his father. He values nothing in his father's relationship. And so he has rebelled against his father's authority. He's killed the relationship between him and his father. And he asks it brazenly. As the younger brother, he would have received a third of his father's estate. The older brother would have received a double portion, two-thirds, the younger one-third. But notice he didn't, the word inheritance isn't here. He didn't ask for his inheritance because you see in that culture, the, with inheritance comes responsibility. If you pick up, if you receive the inheritance, you take responsibilities unto yourself to care for the family and for the clan. But he distinctly does not ask for the inheritance. He simply asks for his share of the property. He is hungry for the money. And under normal circumstances, the father would have been enraged. He would have punished this son maybe disowned him. But here we see the father, at the end of verse 12, it says he divided his property between them. The father, with what we can only imagine is a broken heart, goes forward with his son's request. Now, even though his older son has the lion's share of the estate, there is still the father, as he's alive, still has the power of distribution. He's still able to uh, use the property and, and, and use its resources. But now the ownership ultimately goes to the son. But by the father not disowning his son, by him not doing the normal cultural expectation here and saying, how dare you, and disowning him, he leaves the door open for reconciliation. And so the father stands there suffering the broken relationship. It's as if the cord between them has been cut and he stands there with a frayed end and is willing for that to be retied and reconnected at some future point. His younger son 
not caring and not knowing what he has done, not caring the pain he, and the suffering he's caused to his father. The younger son, as soon as he receives his possession of the share of his property, he liquidates his assets. Look at verse 13. It says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey. This word for gathered all he had is translated in the New English Bible as the younger son turned the whole of his share into cash. This verb can, can mean to liquidate. The estate of his father would have been in land, would have been in animals and other such things. And he didn't want any of that. He didn't want the investment of that land and of, of that livestock. Instead, he wanted to liquidate, turn it into cash so he could spend it on his desires. Now, one of the dynamics we can miss in this story is the, uh, the social dynamic that would have been taking place in a, a Middle Eastern village like this. We live in somewhat an atomistic society in which we all are, so, are individuals and we all live our individual lives and our individual homes and jobs and all the rest. And we have a certain connection if we have neighbors and whatnot and family, there's connections. But there was much tighter social units, particularly within the village uh, in that day and is still found in, in some rural villages and other parts of the world today, particularly in the Middle East. These villages were tight-knit communities of family clans. And because they lived so closely together and because there wasn't modern machinery, whether it be AC units or uh, farm equipment or anything else, it was quiet other than the bleeding of sheep and, and brain of cows and whatnot. And so uh, arguments and, and conversations traveled quickly. And so this son's request would have been known by everyone in the village by the end of the day. It would have been shocking. There would have been gasps going throughout this village as they would have heard what this son has done. And so this younger son is in a, in a, in a bad place. I mean, this village just recognizes what the, he has done and he has shamed his father, he has shamed himself, and now he's selling his possessions to other people in the village or the surrounding villages. And he's selling quickly too. Notice that it's not many days later. There's only a few days he's trying to take this third of his father's estate and liquidate it quickly. In other words, he's not looking to get top dollar. He's not waiting to get the right price. He's willing to sell at any price so that he can, he can get the money. He wants to get out of town. After he converts everything into cash, he, it says he sets out on a journey into a far country. He is trying to get away from his father that he has already shown he hates. He has no affection for his father. He wants to live it up and celebrate while his father he treats as good as dead. But as he leaves, he is leaving the only security that he's ever known. This is his only lifeline. Again, in the ancient world, there was not insurance plans and, and bank accounts that you can access from anywhere that you go. Your safety net was your family clan. And what he's doing right here is he's burning his bridges. He's got nothing to return to. To be part of a family clan was part of your core identity. Who are you? Well, I'm son of so-and-so, of the tribe of so-and-so. They would recount their family affiliation. And so if you're ever down and out, 
you could pull out your family name, go to the right place, and you could be able to receive help. In fact, the Jews had a practice in the first century called Kezazah, which was a process, a ceremony which would be enacted when someone would go uh, to a Gentile land and waste their money. And if they returned, they would take a clay pot and they would smash it, emphasizing the fact that they're being cut off from their people. That they're no longer a part of this family. And so that threat of that Kezazah ceremony is always there over this story. But it says he went into a far country. Based upon the fact that pigs are mentioned later on in the story, we know it's a Gentile country. He moves out of the realm of his people, the Jewish people, out into a time, a place of Gentiles. For Jews, even today, as then, did not eat pig meat. And as he's there, it says, look at verse 13, there he squandered his property in reckless living. He just began to, the word for squandered is scattered. It's as if he's throwing money out the window. He's just tossing it wherever he can. He is spending carelessly and foolishly and wastefully. And it's here that we see that this prodigal son is one that represents the self-indulgent even in our own day. Those who live the high life simply to, to satisfy their own flesh. Those who go full bore into sin. Those who don't care about the consequences, they just want the pleasure. And they're squandering it all. In this, remember the, the context of this parable being told, those standing there were the tax collectors and sinners. They were the ones viewed in society who had made choices to, to give themselves to sin, to sin freely. Therefore, they represented, they were represented by this prodigal son in this story. They were living immoral lifestyles, doing that which is wrong and sinful. But these same sort of folks live today, do they not? People who cast off all moral restraint. They don't want to be held down by repressive rules about how to govern behavior. They simply want to do whatever they want to do. They want to live it up. Now, people will seek this pleasure and this satisfaction in different ways. It doesn't always look the same. Sin is incredibly creative. But the point is is that this prodigal and prodigals today are a law unto themselves. They are the ones that determine what is right and what is wrong. They determine what they will do and they will pursue it because that's what they want. They don't want to be controlled by God's law or God's word. Now, it's easy for us who sit in the pew to think of all those people out there that live wantonly for their own selfish pleasure who live according to the dictates of their own sin and passions and pleasures, and to both judge and lament those who sin, live so sinfully. On our best days, we're heartbroken over those who would continually go after such sin, who would spend their days and their money and their energies and their lives, years upon years, simply for trying to satisfy their flesh 
We grieve over the fact that people are trying to, to satisfy their thirsty souls by plunging their head in what the Old Testament says, broken cisterns. They're supposed to hold water, but instead they don't, and so they're just lapping up dust. This world is filled with people doing that, thinking that they can satisfy themselves by the empty pleasures of this life, and we, again, in our best days, we lament that. But if we're honest, on our worst days, we have judgment that rises up in our hearts, right? We sound somewhat like the Pharisee in Luke 18, Oh Lord, thank you that I'm not like those people. We may even have anger over those who would do such things, believing we could never, ever do that. And yet, friends, if we're honest, we have some of these same prodigal tendencies in our own hearts, do we not? That we, there are cravings in our own hearts. There are desires that we have that we give into. There are cravings that we desire that we are tempted after. And we give in to our fleshly indulgences. We are self-indulgent in our own ways. We give in to our bodily appetites instead of controlling them. The flesh craves fulfillment and attempts us to turn our back on God's word and to run after that which looks good and feels good in the short term. And so we need to be honest and recognize that we too are tempted after the very same ways that the prodigal was. And so this prodigal went after the quote-unquote freedom that sin seemed to offer. It seemed to be great to, to lose the harness and the, the, the controlling nature of his father and to run out onto his own and to do whatever he wants. He ran after the freedom that sin seemed to offer. But the second truth that the story reveals is the failure of sin. The failure of sin in verses 14 to 17. The book of Hebrews declares that sin, its pleasure, is fleeting. Hebrews eleven twenty five, And the prodigal son had to learn this the hard way. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. First, he spent everything that he had. He had thrown all the money out the window. It scattered far and wide. He squandered it. And it had all run dry. Even when his funds got low, even when he was down to his last dollars, as it were, he didn't stop. He continued to spend until it was out. But as if things couldn't, that would be bad enough. But notice the circumstances in the country that he's at. There arose, it says, a severe famine. Now, those of us in the West don't know famine all that personally. Even in 2020, when there were some bare grocery shelves, we were not experiencing famine. But this world, through the history of the world, and even in parts of the world today, knows what famine is. And this text says it was severe famine. In fact, we should be praying right now for people in Africa, in the Horn of Africa. The, the UN is calling a tsunami of hunger that is about to sweep over 
many nations and millions of people in the, the continent of Africa right now. They're facing already starvation. Famine and starvation causes people to do desperate things. What would you do if you needed to feed your family? What would you do if, if you needed to provide for yourself and for your little ones? And so what this means, and we see the severe famine arose, is that he wasn't the only hungry one. His money had run out, and he needed food, but he wasn't the only one begging. He wasn't the only one desperate for food. There was a society of people that were hungry. He couldn't beg and get scraps from people's table. No one had any extras. And yet, notice that for as desperate as he is, he doesn't yet return home. He's not that desperate yet. He's still going to try to fix the problem himself. No, I can figure this out. I can't go back. I've, I've, I've burned my bridges there. He was going to dig himself out of the hole that he dug. Isn't this how humanity often tries to deal with their own sin? We try to solve the problem ourselves. We try to fix it. No, I got myself into this mess, but I'm going to get myself out. We'll try harder and harder. We'll try to be different. But in the end, all of these waves ultimately fail us from saving us from our sin. In his need, what does he do? Look at verse 15. It says, he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. The word translated hire here means to attach or to glue or to join to someone. In fact, the New King James says he joined himself to a citizen of that country. He went and glued himself to somebody that seemed to have some means and seemed to have some food. This is like he became a beggar that this citizen couldn't shake. You know, the guy that was grasping to his leg and he's trying to shake him off and say, leave me alone. And, and the prodigal son's going, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to stay here until you give me something. That was common in, in those days. Uh, and rather than telling someone a direct no, they would, they would give them an answer that the person would then refuse. So it's very likely here that this citizen, knowing that this son who had made a huge name for himself in the city by all his spending, and was probably very popular throwing parties and all the rest, but now was down and out on the street, that uh, everyone knew that he was a Jew, knew that he wasn't from around there, that he had come from, uh, from, from Israel. And so he offers him a job that he assumes the prodigal will reject. He's going to send him out, offers him to feed pigs, and thinking, yeah, this guy's not going to do that, and I'll finally get rid of him. Because he had so attached and glued himself. But surprisingly, the prodigal wasn't desperate enough. He was willing to take this debased job and to go out into the field and feed the pigs. He chooses to take a defiling job among the swine rather than go, to go home. Remember, if he went home, he would need to face his father whom he shamed and rebelled. He would also need to face the village and the Kezazah ceremony in which he would be cut off for his profligate living. 
He would also need to face his brother who now owned the bulk of the estate. It says that he fed the pigs pods. This word in the Greek most likely refers to the pods of the carob tree. These are, pods are long and narrow and somewhat look like a, uh, uh, an overripe, shriveled, hardened banana. And inside there are some big seeds that are inside these pods. And they're tough and wood-like. And so the pigs were able to chew them and to gnaw them and to, and to eat them, but they're not immediately edible for humans. You'll find today a carob powder and there's other things that we have learned to do with them. But in terms of just plucking them off the tree, we can't quite gnaw on these woody pods like pigs can. And so you'll notice in verse 16, it says he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate. He couldn't actually eat their food, but he longed to be filled with them. He was... He was, in one sense, dreaming. You can just picture him waking up from some half-sleep state, and he's just chewing, and in this, this dream of chewing those pods, because he's just so desperately hungry that he wants the food that the pigs have. He realizes, they've got full stomachs, but I don't. You know things are getting bad when you start dreaming about pig food. His hunger was beginning to distort reality. And so verse 16, the end of verse 16 says, no one gave him anything. I think this is a, a phrase to recognize that he tried begging. He tried going out on the food, he tried no, on, the, on the street, he tried knocking on doors, he tried begging wherever he could, and he got no handouts. He was left to starve. And here we find the prodigal son is eating the bitter fruit of sin's consequences. It stripped him bare of all that he had. He had absolutely nothing left. This is where his sin took him. As one Puritan wrote, it left him bare as crows do a dead carcass. Ruin follows riot at the heels. Left him bare as crows do a dead carcass. You see, sin is pleasurable for a season. It feels good. That's the marketing appeal of sin. That's why we give in to temptation, because it looks good and it promises satisfaction. But in the end, sin will always fail us. It never pays off. It makes promises. Sin promises the world. It promises the greatest delights. But it can never keep those promises. It promises joy and satisfaction, but those dry up quickly. They do not last forever. It promises that you'll avoid the threats of God's justice. Oh, God's not really angry with you. Just continue on in this sin and enjoy it. Live it up. But sin can't shield you from the judgment and the reckoning that we will all face. It'll only distract you from that looming reality for a time. Sin promises freedom to let loose and be who you are. Don't be weighed down by guilt. And yet ultimately in our quiet moments, that's exactly what it does. It makes us feel guiltier and guiltier. Sin promises to be your friend but it's a friend that demands greater and greater allegiance and sacrifice. 
Sin promises life but gives you death. Sin promises freedom but gives you slavery. Sin promises joy, but ultimately, in the end, friends, it gives you sorrow and regret. Now, sometimes the pleasures of sin can go on for a long time. It could be months or years, as was maybe the case with this young man. We don't know how long his money lasted. But friends, the Bible is clear that pleasures forevermore are only found at God's right hand. It is only in Him alone that our souls are able to be satisfied for all of eternity. Everything else falls short. We get lured into thinking that pursuing what our flesh craves will make us happy, but in the end, it leaves us discarded in the muck and the mire as it left the prodigal there in the pigsty. This is a perfect illustration of what sin does to us. And the wise will see this illustration and take it to heart. Fools will ignore it and go on and suffer harm for it. Friends, I entreat you, do not believe the lie of sin. Do not believe that it will give you anything that your heart desires. See that it will fail you every single time. Now, by God's grace, this prodigal did not remain in that state, but he came to himself. It says he found the path back. And so that leads to the third truth that we see in the story, and that is the footpath of repentance. The footpath of repentance. There is a path he had to tread to come back. Look at verse 17. It says, and when, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. As he's there in the pigsty, as they're wallowing in the muck and the mire, he suddenly, it says, came to himself. He came to himself. We might say he came to his senses. He came to himself mentally. Remember, he wasn't thinking straight. He was admiring the pig's food, but he, he began to suddenly realize that he knows of a place where he can get a meal. I mean, think about it. He was literally dying where he was at. He was shriveling up. He was without food. He says, I perish here in hunger. But notice, where did his mind go when he actually came to himself? Was it to any of his friends that he had acquired in that country? No, his mind went to his father. For months now, he's been trying to live life without his father. He's been suppressing the thought of the man he disgraced and left behind. He had left his father making a statement that he practically wished his father was dead. And now he remembers his father as possibly his only hope. But notice that it's not just his father generally. Oh, yeah, dad. You know, dad, you know, might be something he's got for me. But he remembers his father's kindness. His father's kindness. He says that his, my father's hired servants have more than enough bread. They have bread to spare. They could actually share with me they have so much because my father's been so kind to them. You see, day laborers, these hired workers, were 
very low in social status. They were considered day laborers. They literally ate hand to mouth. They needed the, the money that they made from that day in order to feed their, themselves and their family for that day. In one sense, this was almost worse than a slave because they uh, didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. The slave was provided for. The day laborers, there was no guarantee. And yet, the prodigal son remembers that those whom his father hired had received so much. And so for the first time in ages, this man thinks about his father and realizes that if he doesn't leave now, he may not have enough strength to even make it back to his dad. But more importantly than a mental wake-up is he had a moral wake-up. He came to himself morally and spiritually. Look at his speech in verse 18 and 19. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I have sinned against heaven. This is a recognition of his sin before God, heaven representing the place where God dwells. He realized that his rebellion was not just against his father, but it was against God as well. It was against God in heaven. But he also knows that his sin was against his father. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What a different man this is. This is not the arrogant son that said, give me the money. This is a man who comes, is speaking humbly, recognizing the offense that he's caused. He left home having no regard for his father, wishing his father was dead. He didn't even bat an eye about breaking his father's heart. But now he recognized that, that he has lost all privilege of being called his father's son. He has acted more like an enemy than a son. And so he plans to go back and to ask to be brought on as a day laborer. He's humbled and he's willing to take the lowest position in his father's house. He concludes that this is the only position he's worthy of in light of what he's done. But notice he enacted his plan. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. What began in his heart and mind as he lay there in the slop translated into action. It didn't stay an idea. He got up out of the pig pen and began making the long journey home. And friends, what we see here in the story of the prodigal is the wonderful illustration of the footpath of repentance that we all must tread. Each one of us must tread this path. Everyone must turn to the Lord in the same way. There must be the same ingredients. Now, some people have said that they've repented, but they've missed some of the crucial ingredients. They think, oh, if I just confess it and say it, then I've repented and I'm good. Or if I just change my behavior, then I'm, I've repented and I'm good. But that's not what we see in this story. That's not what we see in the rest of scriptures. And so to help us understand repentance and all that's included, I want to give you six ingredients of repentance from the Puritan Thomas Watson. I've given these before. I think it's helpful. But first, let me give you his definition of repentance. His definition of repentance is this. Gospel repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. You could say inwardly humbled and externally changed. 
It's a grace of God's Spirit that he does this. This, in one sense, illustrates that this man sitting in the pigsty, if he had not been gifted the grace of repentance by God's Spirit, he would still be there and he would die in that pig pen. Sin so binds us that it doesn't matter how bad the circumstances get, we will stay in our sin unless God comes to rescue us. Watson gives these six ingredients of gospel repentance. The first is this, the sight of sin. In order for there to be true repentance, there must be, number one, the sight of sin. You must see yourself as a sinner and nothing but a sinner. There's no excuses. There's no saying I'm only half a sinner. No, there must be full recognition. Watson says, before a man can come to Christ, he must come to himself. Just as the prodigal did, right? It says he came to himself. He must wake up. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. Sin must first be seen before it can be wept for. So first is the sight of sin. Second is sorrow for sin. Without sorrow, our repentance is suspect. We sorrow, why? Because we've offended a holy God. Not sorrowing over the, repent, over the punishment that we receive, for that is only worldly sorrow. It doesn't take the Spirit of God to sin over consequences and punishment. Humans naturally in our sinful state don't like consequences. We will feel bad and we will sorrow over natural consequences. It takes the work of the Spirit to sorrow over our offense to God. Now some may sorrow more easily than others. Watson notes this, he said, some are naturally of a more rugged disposition and are not easily brought to stoop. These must have greater humiliation as a knotty piece of timber must have greater wedges driven into it. To all of you who have ever had to split wood and you know of a really knotty round of wood and how many wedges it takes to split it, you know exactly what Watson's talking about. The prodigal son, he needed some great and desperate circumstances in order to break him so that he would sorrow over what he's done. So first, sight of sin. Second, sorrow for sin. Third, confession of sin is a third ingredient. In confession, we verbally agree with God about our sin. We say, yes, I am condemned. Yes, I am guilty. I am a sinner. And we verbalize it to God and to others if necessary. And this is exactly what we see the prodigal do, right? I have sinned against heaven and before you, he says. Fourthly, shame for sin. Shame for sin. Our society is desperately trying to erase shame. They think that shame is the big problem. Of course, they want to put shame on other sins. They're just redefining what sins they put shame onto. So shame is not going away. It's just want to, they want to move it off of the, the sins they want to participate in. But shame is an important ingredient. It's for our own help. Watson said this, he says, when the heart has been made, made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. The prodigal was so ashamed of what he had done that he's thought himself unworthy to be called a son anymore. The fifth ingredient is hatred for sin. Hatred for sin. 
One who is truly humbled and repentant will loathe the sin that they participated in. Watson again said, Christ is never loved till sin is loathed. Christ is never loved till sin be loathed. Heaven is never longed for till sin be loathed. As the prodigal was forced to see the emptiness of worldly pleasures, he realized how these had destroyed him. He longed for the acceptance of his father, no longer wanting the pleasures of sin. And the sixth and final ingredient of repentance is turning from sin. Turning from sin. Finally, there must be an external turning away from sin and toward the Lord. Repentance has not happened unless there is a change of behavior. You can't have all this sorrow and all this confession and woe is me, and then you go back and do the same things. The prodigal got up and began walking home, showing that his repentance was genuine. Now, friends, we can repent and we can turn and we can find ourselves back in the same slop that we were in before, right? And so we repeat this process of repentance. It's not to say that if we don't do it perfectly the first time, if our repentance isn't perfect and have all these ingredients, that all is lost. It just means that if we find ourselves still in our sin, then we walk this footpath of repentance again asking for God's grace to change our hearts and change our lives. We want to come to our senses just like the prodigal did. He had realized what a fool he'd been. And he knew that his only hope was to return home. And so he took the journey back to his father's house. But nothing could have prepared him for what he found there. And this leads us to the fourth truth revealed in this story. And that is the forgiveness of the father. The forgiveness of the father. Now, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of this prodigal son as he returns home. Think of what he has gone through. Think of what he has done. Think of the shame that he bears facing all of his childhood friends and family, everyone that knows him well. He's showing his face again. That Kezazah's ceremony is there threatening him, that he'll be cut off from his village. And what does he have? What is he bringing back? Friends, he's barely bringing back his own body. He's probably shuffling because he's weak with hunger. He's probably has barely any clothes on him. If they are, they're tattered, they're dirty. He reeks of pig slop and manure. He is a, not a sight to look at. He could probably barely stay on his feet. The shame of being cut off from his people, the ridicule that he would receive is threatening him. There was no doubt great fear in his heart, but his hunger and his drive was the only thing that was pressing him forward. But as we read verse 20, this would have shocked Jesus' audience. There would have been audible, probably audible gasps as Jesus told this story. Look at it. It says, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We get the image of a father standing and looking, straining his eyes. How many days has he done this? 
How many days has he waited for some glimmer of hope on the horizon that his son is coming back? What hope would he have that his son would ever come back? And yet there he is, not the angered father who's in a huff off and has forgotten and counted his son as dead, but the father who remains standing there with his frayed end of the rope hoping for reconciliation. And he sees, he sees this, this body limping down the road. And as he recognizes that it's his son, his heart wells up with compassion within him. The word here for compassion has to do with the intestines, the innards, because the ancient world believed that this was the, where all of our emotion came from was deep down inside. He was cut to the heart. He was slain internally as he saw his son limping back. And even though his son had turned away from him, his heart had never turned away from his son. And so, in order, he knows the shame that his son will receive when he enters the village again. And so rather than his son going through that pain and that shame, the father instead takes on the shame himself in order to reconcile and win his son back. Without hesitation, he throws himself at his rebellious son. In that culture, no man over 25 would ever run. It was shameful, it was undignified. In order to run, you'd have to lift up your long robe, you'd have to expose your, your ankles and lower legs. This is something that children or, or young boys, teenagers did, but, but this was not something that mature fathers would do. But this father was willing to take the shame upon himself. He was willing to pay the price. He was willing to pay the cost in order to win his son back. He exposed himself to shame and reproach for his behavior because he loved his son. It says he was a long way off when he started running. He must have run a long way. He must have been in pain even from running that whole distance. But what did he do when he reached him? Did he shake his hand? Did he put his arm around him? Say, good to see you, son. He threw himself upon his son. He embraced him with a long, hard embrace. And he kissed him. He was not put off by the dirt, the stench, or the rags. The dirtiness of his son did not turn him away. He enveloped his long-lost son in his arms and showed the affection of a father as if his son had done nothing wrong. The verb used for kissing indicates that he did it repeatedly. He couldn't stop. He was just showing his love upon his son. His lips touched that sweat and manure-infested skin that it accumulated over all those days. And friends, this verse, this story, 
has connected with Christians through the centuries because it is such a vivid illustration of God's love for us. Because we were lost like the prodigal. What does God do for repentant sinners? He runs towards them and he embraces them. In the sending of Jesus Christ, God incurred a loss to himself. He paid the penalty. He paid the cost to rescue and reconcile sinners such as you and I to himself. Friends, he came to get you. God was exuberant in his love to win you to himself. Do you see that unhindered love? Do you see the cost that he paid? He was not put off by your brokenness. He was not put off by your filth and your dirt. He was not put off by your wickedness and your sin. But he comes to get us in the midst of our sin. And when he came to get you, he did not just exchange pleasantries. He embraced you and kissed you as his child. This doesn't make any sense. How could a perfect and holy God embrace dirty, vile sinners just as us? Isaiah chapter 64 says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have the same filthy rags morally that the prodigal son had. And yet he forgives us who come to him in repentance. He is exuberant in his love for sinners. Notice that the son actually went through his confession with the father. His father's embracing him. He, he says, verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, and it goes on. He's confessing, but before he can even finish, the father cuts him off. The father cuts him off. But notice he goes through with his confession. He confesses his sin. He confesses his unworthiness. But then the Father shows his forgiveness by what he does next. And that leads us to the final truth this morning, the felicity of reconciliation. The felicity of reconciliation. When a sinner is reconciled to God, there is great joy as illustrated in the final part of this prodigal story. Look at how it's illustrated in this story. It says, but the father said to his servants or his slaves, verse 22, bring quickly the, the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This man is having everything exchanged. Everything is, his, his fortunes are completely reversed. The filthy rags are being taken off of him. And instead he's being given robes of great position. He is showing that he is a son once again. There is full reconciliation. The father has reconciled with his son and the whole village would know, news would spread quickly that this man has been brought back and has been reconciled. The father has paid the price so that the son can be brought home again. He doesn't get a lower seat. He gets the same seat as a son. They kill the, they prepare a feast a great meal, it says, verse 23, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. This would have been a, a, a calf that would have been fed grain in order so that it might get fat and provide lots of meat. It was saved for a great celebration. 
They didn't have the grocery stores filled with meat like we do today. They raised their meat, and so this was reserved for something special. Why does he do this? Why does he pull out all the stops for such a celebration? Verse 24, he gives his reason. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. To the cost of love of the Father, the Son is reconciled. Everything he has is because of the grace and generosity of his Father. And so, too, we are children of God because of the grace of God. All we have is because of him. He has reconciled us to himself. We are accepted. And so we need to let the imagery of the story, friends, teach us about who our God is and what he has done for us. There is no amount of sin that can keep us from the grace of God. As it's been said, we can take a thousand steps away from God, and yet it only takes one to bring us back, that step of repentance. And so this part of the story, we see God's grace to the self-indulgent. The question is, how will you respond to the grace of God in your life? I encourage you, If you don't know the loving embrace of God, please come talk to me afterward. I'd love to share with you how that can be. But next week, we'll finish out this parable looking at God's grace to the self-righteous. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We ask that you would teach these truths to our hearts. Father, reminding us of the failure of sin, reminding us of how Sin does not deliver upon its promises, but that your grace is greater than our sin. Your mercy is more. And so I pray that you would give us hearts of love for you, for all the grace that you have shown us. Your pursuing grace to come and rescue us in our sin. And we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.